Amen. Well, I was having a, a brief conversation with somebody before the service this morning, and they said, is it just me, or is buying gifts getting harder to do? It's like trying to get there, trying to get to the store, trying to order it, making sure it's going to come in on time, that Amazon Prime is doing their thing, right? And, and, then, and then trying to find that gift. Like some people are naturally good gift givers, and some people maybe not so much. Some people procrastinate way too long, and then it's two days before Christmas, and it's like, oh, what am I going to get somebody, right? But to use the, the humanistic expression, there are some things that money can't buy. There are some gifts that we have that we can't, can't buy, can't purchase with money. I'll give you two, holiness and peace. We can't buy holiness. We can't buy peace. We all have a need for holiness because we're all sinners. We can't declare, declare ourselves forgiven that needs to come from God. We all have a need for peace. We try and have peace all sorts of ways with substances, medication, materialism, the list goes on and on. Those things might bring us temporary peace, but lasting peace they cannot. And so how do we get holiness and peace? And well, Luke will tell us all about that this morning. So if you're not in Luke chapter 1, we've been going through Luke chapter 1. And we'll be in Luke chapter 2 next week on Christmas. And uh, last week we looked at the visit uh, of Mary to her relative Elizabeth and the song of Mary's praise. We saw through her, her example that believing God's word produces the blessings of obedience. And we saw how we are called, like Mary, to worship God for his provision, his power, and his promise. And ultimately, like Mary, though we experience fear and doubt, we fight fear and doubt with faith and worship. This week, we take the focus off Mary for a moment, and we look at Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, the other miracle birth that is in play here this Advent season. And in the context of our passage this week, John the Baptist has just been born, and John's father, Zechariah, puts all the pieces together, and it wells up in him in this kind of song of praise, but rather it's actually a, a prophecy. When we think about prophecy, sometimes we think prophecy is being able to predict the future, which, yes, could be a part of prophecy. But more times than not, prophecy is just actually seeing God's hand working and, and putting the pieces together scripturally. Zechariah does that. Zechariah says, this is of the Lord, and here's why. And he speaks this maybe prophetic praise uh, to God for this work. Let's, let's see how Zechariah does this. And look at verse 67 again. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And if we pause there, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, sings this prophetic praise to God as he sees this plan of God unfolding before his very eyes. He sees it. It wells up in him as praise and prophecy. And like Mary, who said, blessed, now Zechariah starts out with praise to God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And just like Mary, he gives reasons why God is blessed. For, he says, or, or because he has visited and redeemed his people. And this visit just isn't a brief appearance. This isn't a, a social visit, right? This, this is an intentional mission. 
Our word here for visit is the root form of the word episkopos, which is the same word as you might recognize as episcopal or as bishop. And so someone that's overseeing something. And so the idea here is God has visited this family to oversee what is going on. God is ensuring through his Holy Spirit, through this miraculous conception of John the Baptist and of course through Jesus Christ in Mary, God is overseeing this whole thing making sure that his plan goes according to his plan, right? Redemption through the Messiah. God has raised him up, and Zechariah calls the Messiah the horn of salvation for them in the house of David. This is messianic language. As we mentioned last week, the house of David is a well-known messianic uh, requirement. The Messiah has to come through the line of the family of David, and Jesus, of course, does come through the line of the family of David, that he will rule over God's eternal kingdom forever, right? But what about this horn of salvation? Most of our contemporary pictures of a horn don't help us here at all. This is not the horn of a car. This is not the horn of an instrument. But think of the context to the original audience. What would a horn be to them? It would be none of those things. It would be the horn of an animal, You think about the horn of of an ox or a bull or a ram. It represents strength. It represents power. Psalm 132 verse 17 tells us that God will make a horn to sprout from David. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 22 verse 3, it says, My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, watch this, and the horn of my salvation my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. So we see that the horn of salvation, though a very strange expression to us, is a Savior, not just any Savior, a mighty Savior, a powerful Savior. Again, in verses 70 through 71, all of this was foretold by the prophets of old. And why is this happening? that the people of God should be saved from their enemies and delivered from all of those who oppose them or hate them. But saved for what? Well, that's what's going to happen in the next part. Look at 72. Saved to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Verse 72 tells us that God promised something to their forefathers. He promised mercy. God made a covenant with Israel that they would be his people and that they would be, or he would be their God, rather, and that all the world would be blessed through them. God would work his global purpose of redemption through him who is now already, of course, set in motion with Jesus being in Mary's womb. However, Israel didn't fulfill their covenant promise, as we know. They turned away from the true God, and they actually worshipped the gods of the peoples that they were supposed to kick out of the promised land and God's holy judgment upon them. They turned from God. They rejected God. They did not fulfill their end of the covenant. So did their failure in the covenant then nullify the whole thing? Is God then powerless to do something because he really needed Israel to keep their end of the bargain and they did it? So, oh well, no redemption for anyone then. That's not how that works. Because back when God was making a covenant with Abraham, he said, this covenant, this whole thing is on me. 
It's not on you and me. It's not a bilateral covenant where it's dependent on two parties. It's a unilateral covenant. It is all me because he knows full well that Israel is going to fail them. And so he says, the covenant that I will make with you, Abraham, is going to be on me because I am faithful. It is impossible for God to be anything other than faithful. Verse 72 and 73 tell us that clearly the Messiah's appearance is a fulfillment of that covenant. It's a fulfillment of that oath that God originally made with their father Abraham. And this is all mercy. And we see this in places such as the book of Jeremiah. Maybe in chapter 46, verse 27. We'll say this, But fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Be not dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of the nations which have driven you, but I will not make you a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, but I will no means leave you unpunished. God says, it's not over, Israel. I know you failed me, and you will fail me, but guess what? I'm not going to make a full end to you. I am merciful. I am gracious. I will uphold the covenant in faithfulness where you failed. And we see that. And we see that's why Zechariah is praising the Lord. Because that's what God has done. And Zechariah knows that. The pieces have fallen together for him. There's a reason why God keeps his covenant where Israel has failed. There's a reason why they were delivered from their enemies. In verse 74, the last line is that we might serve him without fear. Now remember, this purpose, although made to Israel, right, was always global in nature. It was never meant to stay just with Israel. All of the nations of the world, from the beginning, that was the plan. It was supposed to start with Israel, but it was supposed to go throughout the whole world. And that's why we're here today. We're Gentiles grafted into the promise because of Jesus the Messiah and our faith in Jesus the Messiah and God's mercy. We're saved for a reason, that we might serve God without fear. There's only one problem with that. That God is 100% holy, He's 100% righteous, He's 100% good, we are not. We are sinners by nature and choice. And we cannot approach God in our sinfulness. We need a mediator. We need one to go before us. We need one to make us righteous. We approach God on the merit of one who is righteous, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, his son. That's what verse 75 tells us, that we are not only saved to serve God, but serve him, note that, in holiness and righteousness before him. God calls us to serve him in holiness and righteousness. He knows, like Israel, that we will fail in serving him in holiness and righteousness. And so he provides a way for us to serve him in holiness and righteousness. And so here's the point. Jesus fulfills God's plan of salvation so that we can serve God in holiness. Jesus fulfills that plan so that we can serve God in holiness. There's a spiritual reality hanging above all of our heads. Every single human being, there's a spiritual reality at work that most people don't give a second thought to. That God is king and that we're living in his kingdom. And we talked last week 
about how we all enjoy the gracious provisions of the king, not even giving them a second thought. There's a major problem, of course, sin. We're all in rebellion against this sin. We all still live in his kingdom, and we're called to be his subjects. We're called to serve him in righteousness and holiness. We're called to live according to his standard, which is his law, and we cannot. We are called to serve him in holiness, but there's no way we can do that because of sin. That's where fear comes in, because we know that we are not holy, and we cannot serve the king in a way that he calls us on our own. That's the beauty of the gospel, church. The beauty of the gospel is that he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The beauty of the gospel is that he's gracious. He provides for us what we cannot do for ourselves, a path to holiness, to serve him without fear. Think about how frustrating it might be to know someone, maybe a boss or a spouse or a parent or a friend or some sort of relationship where you just constantly feel like you can't please them. You constantly feel like you're failing. Try and understand the hopelessness that that would produce, the fear of inevitable failure. And think about how many people in this world walk around with a low-level sense of failure. They're failing at life or at parenting or at our careers or marriages or schools, figuring out what we want to be when we grow up, all of that. How many people walk around thinking they're failing God, feeling that low-level guilt that God views them as a failure? It's one of the most important questions I ask somebody in pastoral counseling is, what do you think God thinks of you? And a lot of times people will say, I just feel like he thinks I'm a failure. Just like I can't do anything right. Then realize, church, that God himself has made a way for you to be holy and righteous in his sight. Instead of failure, God brings us success and love and acceptance and holiness and righteousness in his eyes because of Jesus Christ the Messiah. So we are not set up to fail. We're set up to succeed in holiness and righteousness because what God has given us through Jesus in fulfillment of his covenant promise. Where Israel failed, God is faithful. Where we will fail, God is faithful. And Jesus, of course, is at the center of his plan, and it will be what Zechariah is singing about in his prophetic song, of course. Jesus fulfills God's promise of salvation so we can serve him in holiness. Let's look at the other promise in the second part of our passage this morning. Look at verse 76. And you, child, speaking now to John the Baptist, right? We called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Zechariah turns his attention away from the promise of God and Jesus, the Messiah, and now turns his attention to his own son, John, the baptizer. He says that on his own, the child will be called the prophet of the Most High. So basically, technically, this is a prophet about a prophecy or a prophecy about a prophet. It's kind of a, a, a vortex that you can get in, right? Two weeks ago, we saw that the words of Gabriel 
in chapter uh, 1, verse 32, that Mary's child will be great and called the Son of the Most High. And now we see that John the Baptist will be the prophet of the Most High. We see that this is, of course, talking about God himself. Right? John the Baptist, the prophet of God. Why? He will go before the Lord, before the Messiah, to prepare his way. Now, this is remarkable because all of this is the work of the Holy Spirit, which has been pretty much inactive for 400 years. We see this happening again. If you look to the last book of the Old Testament, probably 20 or 30 pages from where you are now to the left, right? the Italian prophet Malachi. Anyway. <laughs> Chapter 4, Malachi. Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. God drops this word through the prophet Malachi, and then for 400 years, silence. No words from the Lord. No understanding of how this is going to be fulfilled until Jesus comes, until John the Baptist comes. And we remember from Matthew chapter 11, Starting in verse 13, Jesus tells us directly. He says, For all the prophets of the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Him who has, has ears, let him hear. Jesus himself says that John the Baptist is this Elijah, the one prophesied by Malachi, now coming. And now we see this happening right here. The Holy Spirit, imagine that. The Holy Spirit now coming on the scene again to fulfill this prophecy that for 400 years people were wondering if it was true and wondering when it was going to happen. And it's happening right here. And Zechariah is putting the pieces together prophetically. And it wells up in him in song. Why is Elijah coming? Well, our passage in verse 77 tells us to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John the Baptist will be that voice calling in the wilderness that we remember from Matthew, saying, repent for the kingdom of hand is at hand. In other words, turn from your sin. The king is coming soon. John the Baptist preaches the gospel of salvation through faith in the one to come. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom is at hand. And how will this, this kingdom of forgiveness come to pass? In verse 78, it says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high. I love sunrises whenever we are traveling and we're anywhere near water or the beach I'm, one of those sickos that gets up early in the darkness and, and walks and can't wait for the sunrise to come up and take 75,000 pictures on my phone of the, of the sunrise getting up. It's, it's beautiful to see. I love to see it in the morning. It's a promise of a new day and the faithfulness of God and yet another day, the sun coming up. I'm always struck by how sometimes when I'm out walking the dog, the beauty of the sunrise, and it's like this just happens every day. How many times do we notice it? It's so glorious, we think about it. But as the sun coming up over the horizon brings light, so will the coming of the Messiah bring light. That's why Luke calls it the, the rising of the sun. The sunrise shall visit us on high. But not only light, healing and hope 
The hope of restoration, the hope of renewal, that's where verse 79 goes. Look at that with me one more time. It's so beautiful. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Did you catch that? For those who sit in darkness, the Messiah will bring light. For those who are sitting in the shadow of death, light will come. Darkness, the absence of light. Death, the absence of life. Why is he doing all that? Ultimately, verse 79 tells us, right, to bring peace. Peace. He will guide our feet to peace. In other words, he will lead us right there to peace. He will show us the way to peace. And so here's the point. Jesus fulfills God's promise of renewal so that we can live in peace. Jesus fulfills God's promise of renewal so that we can live in peace. How many Christmas uh, decorations do we see that have the word peace in them? Christmas is known as a time of peace. Why? Because maybe the world itself recognizes that's what it needs the most. And we have this little, this little kind of refuge in Christmas time of just peace. Can we just forget our differences, forget the wars, forget everything else, just maybe focus on peace for a little while? The peace of renewal to be taken out of death and darkness to be restored to God through faith in the Messiah to come, that's a peace of restoration that nothing the world can give can ever compare it to. That peace that the Messiah can, that brings. It's being right. It's being restored to your king. It's a peace in your soul that the world could never bring. Christmas carols, of course, are so rich in theology. O come, O come, Emmanuel has the line, O come, thou dayspring, right, the sunrise, O come, thou dayspring from on high and cheer us by drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Right out of this passage. Encouraged by the hark, the herald angels sing, proclaim, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. And watch this, risen with healing in His wings. That's what Jesus will do. Jesus will bring peace. Jesus will bring hope. Jesus will bring restoration and healing. And what is that ultimate peace that we need? The peace from which all other peace flows, of course, it is peace with God through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us that clearly in many places, but maybe most succinctly in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, watch this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the biggest gift of all this Christmas is peace with God. That can only come through the Christ child, through Jesus the Messiah, who Zechariah is singing about, who John the Baptist, his son, will point to. And so first, I have to ask, church, do you have this peace? Do you have this peace with God that the Apostle Paul is talking about, that Jesus is coming to guide our feet? Do you have this peace? peace. Hear me, you can't and you won't have peace in any other area of your life until you have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't and you won't 
have peace in any other aspect of your life. And of course, we try and have peace in all those other aspects of our lives, right? Because those are the dumpster fires. We want to put those out. But that's just a band-aid. You need to have peace with God through Jesus Christ first. And then it will flow down in every other area of your life. Holidays are stressful. Why? Because sometimes we're forced to make a peace where there might not be a peace. We see family that we might be in conflict with. We buy gifts for people that we don't really want to buy gifts for. Maybe we don't even have the money to buy gifts for. And we keep jacking up our credit card bills. And that doesn't bring us peace. We're reminded maybe of lost loved ones. We feel the pain of grief, the absence of peace. Maybe most particularly in this passage this morning, holidays can make us realize that we are flat out not at peace with ourselves. You spend that time with yourself and you just realize you don't like yourself very much. You realize you're not at peace with yourself. That's the path to peace is what Christ has come to do. You can only get that through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who will bring your feet to peace. If that's you, it, it doesn't make any sense to try and fix all the superficial elements of your life until you fix the fundamental heart turmoil of your relationship with your king. Above all, this Advent season and every season, we need peace with God, and that only comes through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, if you haven't given yourself a gift this Christmas, try that one. Accept the gift that God has given you for peace through his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you've already done that church, which I suspect the vast majority of us have, are you walking in that peace? Are you feeling that? Are you experiencing that peace this season or not? Are you living in God's peace this Advent? If you're not, you know what you need to do. You need to restore your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So let's put the pieces together this morning. Here's the big idea. Jesus came to give us holiness and peace. Jesus came to give us holiness and peace. I know that that is somewhat syllogistic. If Jesus fulfills God's promise of salvation, we can serve him in holiness, right? He fulfills God's promise of renewal that we can live in peace. Therefore, Jesus came to give us holiness and peace. Our God and King is good. He's kind. He's merciful. Church, he literally provides us with what we need. He doesn't call us to some sort of frustrating relationship where we're set up for failure. Through Jesus Christ, if you have Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, he does not look at you as a failure. Can can we just understand that? If you are a blood-bought, faith-regenerated son and daughter of Jesus Christ, he does not look at you as a failure. Why not? because he looks at you through his son, Jesus Christ. We don't understand that. That's positionally who we are through Jesus Christ. Now, now don't get me wrong. We can fail. We can sin, and we do, and we will. And when we do, we need to repent, and we need to walk in line with our identity in Jesus Christ. But we need to remember who we are through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to give us holiness, and he came to give us peace. We can't serve him in holiness without what, without what he provides for us in Jesus Christ. And we can't live in peace without what he provides for us in Jesus Christ. And so are we serving him in holiness? Are we serving him in holiness and righteousness without fear, without wondering what he thinks of us? 
Are we serving him in joy and gladness? Are we living in that peace? And let me tell you, church, a life lived in holiness and peace, is that not a massive testimony to the world around us who doesn't have either one of those things? They should look at us this Advent season and all of the time and see someone who is rock solid in holiness and peace. We'll have our moments, and we're allowed to have our moments, but when we have those moments, we need to realign ourselves with who we truly are and what Jesus has come to bring us and let that testimony be to the world of holiness and peace. There are truly some gifts that all the money in the world can't buy. And holiness and peace are two of them. And Jesus came to give us both. Father, we thank you for this Advent season. We thank you for the way that this causes us to be a little bit out of our routine, to think about some of these things, to think about why you have sent your son, why you have sent John the Baptist, why you've sent others, Lord. We pray that this season that many would recognize the lack of peace in their hearts and that they would turn to you. As the Apostle Paul reminds us, Lord, that they would turn to you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have peace with God. And Father, for those of us who have turned to you, we pray that we would walk in line with our identity, what you have come to bring us. We pray that we would walk in holiness. We pray that we would walk in peace. We pray that in those moments, you would remind us of how you see us and, and, Lord, what you have done for us and how much you love us. And may we shine brightly the holiness and peace through Christ this Advent season. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.